Father God, the greatest need of the hour, indeed the greatest need of our, our, our lives, is you. It is you. It is to know you. It is to treasure you. And it is to love you. And in this season, the Christmas season, is a, a, a calling upon the human and the Christian in particular to fix their eyes on Christ. Which Colossians 1, who Colossians 1 tells us is the reason for everything. And that as we celebrate with our friends and our families and in this season, as we gather around good food and good drink and warm times with each other, that your name would be magnified and glorified and that Jesus would be the center of our affections, the center of our joy. Father, I ask that you do that supernatural work in our hearts right now, Father, as we look at your word. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, so last week, if you were with us, uh, we began a new series, and we called that series, Michael mentioned it earlier, we call, or um, actually, Lauren mentioned it. Uh, we call it the anatomy of joy. And uh, we began it by looking at Luke 2. And Luke 2 is the passage that is known for it being the Christmas story, the story of Mary and Joseph having Jesus in Bethlehem and the shepherds coming after the angels talked to them. And in that story, the angels announced to the shepherds good news of great joy. And this news is that a Savior is going to be born. The Savior is going to be Christ the Lord, the Messiah that this people have been waiting for for literally centuries upon centuries. And he's talking about Jesus. And the way the angel describes this news is very simple. He says it's, it's good news of great joy. Of great joy is how he describes this news. And so the, the goal of the month of December for our church really is to understand what this joy is to, I mean, really understand and know what it is and to embrace it with our hearts, to embrace it by the grace of God with every ounce of our being. This is not a, this is not a normal, like, generic, everyday kind of joy. This is not that joy. The joy here in Luke 2 corresponds with the reality that brought that joy into the world. In other words, it corresponds to the fact that God entered human history. And so this is not an ordinary joy at all. This is an extraordinary joy that, believe it or not, puts to shame every other kind of joy that you can even conceive of in this world. That's the kind of joy that we're dealing with because none of those other joys that you have required God to enter human history. This is an extraordinary joy. And so last week we began our journey, and really we're going to continue through this passage. This is our anchor sort of text for this entire month with 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, where the apostle Peter plunges headlong into this exact joy, the joy of Luke 2, the joy of Christmas. That's what, Luke, that's what Peter's talking about here. This is the joy of the Christian, someone who has encountered the grace of God through this Savior, Christ the Lord, who's entered into the world, the same Savior that the angels declared. And so if you have your Bibles, I hope you do grab them. Turn with me to 1 Peter 1, verse 3. 
And as you do that, I want to underscore this just for a moment. The joy in 1 Peter is Christmas joy. It's Christmas joy. You know, often we don't often think of 1 Peter as being a Christmas text. It is Christmas joy, joy because it's the joy of a Christian. And the joy of a Christian is rooted into the reality. It's focused on the reality of Jesus Christ entering the world. Christians are people who are ultimately defined by this joy. So a Christian isn't defined by how they vote. A Christian isn't defined by what radio station they listen to or don't listen to. A Christian isn't defined ultimately by where they bring their kids to school, where they put their kids to school, if they're homeschooled, if they're not homeschooled. None of those things ultimately define what a Christian is or is not. What defines what a Christian is is that the source and their focus of joy is Jesus Christ. That's the defining reality for the Christian. And that's what a Christian is. And Peter is, in this text, laboring to show us this joy. He is desperate for us to be invited into the fullness of this joyful experience, the, the experience of this joy. And so I'm going to read these seven verses and then we're going to look at this text a little bit closer, a specific aspect of this text. So 1 Peter 1, verse 3 begins, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So last week... Um, we said that this passage is kind of like a diagram that Peter is sort of drawing up of the joy. It's like a panorama of the experience of joy in the life of a Christian. And, and Peter is painting this diagram with various parts. This is why we call it the anatomy of joy, because there's different parts of the anatomy of joy that are essential, critical, necessary, interconnected, and, and overlapping in really interesting ways but they are all individually profoundly important. They are critical for us to understand. This is the picture that he's painting. And last week we focused on uh, verse three. If you could go back to the other slide. <clears throat> verse three of this text that says that we've been born again to a living hope. We've been born again to a living hope. And we saw that that hope is this inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. And we said that that inheritance throughout this text is pointing to Jesus. It's when Jesus returns. The center of that inheritance 
isn't all of the things that we get when Jesus returns. It's that we ultimately get Jesus when he returns. Jesus is the object of the Christian's hope. And this week, with God's help, what I want to do is I want to have us zero in on another part of this anatomy, the part of the anatomy of joy that is inextricably linked to hope, and that is faith, something that is impossible to experience without hope. So let me just read verses 3 and 4 again. Peter says in verses 3 and 4, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so this text is saying that God, in his great mercy, reached into the human heart of a person, Peter's readers and us, if we're Christians, and he brought about an event that's called being born again. Being born again. According to God's great mercy, that's what happened to us. An entirely new human being came into existence with new affections, new desires, new loves, new, new hopes, and this new person's soul is driven to embrace a living hope, a hope that is Jesus Christ, his beauty, his glory, his worth, his splendor, who will be revealed in the last time. But then Peter shifts from this inheritance that's glorious, Jesus, being with him forever, and he turns to us, the recipients of this inheritance, And he says that it's kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is the inheritance. This salvation that our faith is anchored to. And Peter's saying that by God's power, we are guarded by faith. He's helping us understand what faith is is, what true, real, saving faith is, and how it works in our lives. And this is critical because the central command of Scripture, take all of the commands, the main command of the Christian Scriptures is to believe on Jesus Christ, to trust in Christ, to put your faith in Him. And so we might be tempted to think, oh, then we can just do this on our own. We can just will ourselves to believe, like it's some sort of natural response, like putting on a hat or, or walking your dog. Yet, although it is certainly commanded throughout the scriptures to believe in Jesus Christ, never is it depicted as an act of the will, that you could just will yourself to do it. And a great example of this is this text here. Peter is describing our faith not as something we actively, not as, not as an act of our natural inclinations, but as an instrument used by God's power to guard us, to protect us, so that in the end we would get this inheritance. That's what it is in this text. And though clearly faith isn't a passive experience, it's not a passive reality, it is our own faith, after all, that's what it is, our faith, but it is certainly not a natural act of the will, because Having this faith requires being born again. We have to be born again in order to have this faith. Without being born again to a living hope, there's nothing to put your faith into. And so that 
activity, that event of being born again has to happen. And it happens according to the great mercy of God. It happens because of his grace, his mercy towards us. And what this means is this. God does this in us. True faith, real saving faith, which is what Peter's talking about here, is a gift given by God. It's a gift given by God, and it is ultimately sustained by his power, by God's power of being guarded through faith. So right now, if you believe in Jesus Christ, if your confidence is in Jesus, it isn't because you're more spiritually adept than your neighbors. It isn't because you're more naturally inclined to godly things. It isn't just because you've got a predisposition to believe things that people tell you. The reason you trust in Christ Jesus is, according to Peter, the great mercy of God. That's the source of this. It is a gift of God. And we can see this throughout the scriptures. Philippians 1.29, 2 Peter uh, 1 verse 1. Uh, 1 Timothy 1.14, Romans 12.3. I want to look at one text. I think this is the most important text for this specific truth in Scripture. And it's the most well-known. You'll know this one immediately, Ephesians 2.8. And Ephesians 2.8 tells us not only that faith is a gift from God, but it tells us why God did it this way. Ephesians 2.8, for, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Again, this is the instrument of God's salvation. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Paul says here, it is by grace that we are saved. And that salvation isn't us figuring things out and just making a really good decision naturally. That salvation isn't something that we bring anything to the table to. We are empty-handed. If we were to bring anything to the table, including our natural sort of like, I just figured out Jesus is the Savior, I'm going to go to him, then it would be something that would cease to be a gift because it came about on our own doing. But this text says here that in order that we would not boast before God, in order that we would not say, I did this, I made this happen, God has designed salvation to be by his own hands so that he grants faith. It's by God's power, which is what 1 Peter tells us. And Peter knows this firsthand because Jesus taught him this. In Matthew 16, you probably remember this scene, Jesus is asking his disciples, who do they think I am? Like, who, who, do, who do you think I am? That's what he's asking them. He's asking them, well, who does the world think I am? And then he turns to them and he's like, well, who do you think I am? And so I want you to listen to Peter's answer to Jesus's question. And then I want you to listen to Jesus's response, how he qualifies Peter's answer. This is Matthew 16, verse 16, starting with 16. Simon Peter replied to Jesus's question, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So according to Jesus, the reason that Peter knew that Jesus wasn't just some nice guy or some good teacher 
or some cool guy to follow or like the Messiah that was going to come in a way that was going to be not at all what Jesus did. The reason Peter knew that Jesus was the son of the living God wasn't because of his own intuition. It wasn't because of his wisdom. And if you read the gospels, you can definitely tell that that wasn't the case. It wasn't because of his spiritual aptitude. It was because according to Jesus, his father in heaven revealed this to Peter supernaturally. This did not happen by flesh and blood. This happened because of a supernatural act of God so that Peter can look at Jesus in the the face and say, you're the Christ. You are the son of the living God. I know it to be true. It was a revelation inside of Peter, which is what it means to be born again. This is a part of being born again. Faith is the, the first breath of that new life after being born again. It's not something that Peter did on his own. It's something that God did in and through Peter. The reality of Jesus, this is what happened. The truthfulness of Jesus overwhelmed and conquered Peter's unbelief. And he he couldn't deny this man is the Christ. He knew that this was not just another man. This man was the son of God. But it does... To think about faith in this way does beg the question, what is true in saving faith? Like, what is faith? It's, if it's a gift from God, if it's something that God sustains by his power, according to 1 Peter 1, that guards us for a future salvation, what is faith? Like, what is the experience of faith? And to be very clear, I just want to clarify this, we're not talking about any generic faith that you might see expressed in the world, like I trust this situation or this situation or believe this thing or this thing. We are talking about true, authentic, saving faith, the kind of faith that unites you with Jesus. What does God mean when he inspired the authors of the New Testament to record the Greek word pistis, which is, which is the word for faith? What did he mean when he said that word through them? And the Bible helps us with definitions of faith in several places. For example, this is the Advent readings, if you were following along. Hebrews 11.1 provides us with a very clear definition of what faith is. The author of Hebrews says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So this is obviously like as straightforward as you could get you were to ask somebody what's the definition of faith and give them a verse, this verse is very clear. And it says that faith is two different things, two different dynamics of a reality. First, faith is the assurance of something hoped for. So this connects with what we looked at last week, hope. Faith is a connection, an anchor into this living hope. The author of Hebrews says here that faith is our assurance that our hope the return of Christ Jesus, us being with him forever, will be realized in the end. That's not an a, a, a empty hope. That's going to happen one day. And we are assured of it. We can sense that it's going to happen in our hearts. That's what faith is. It's also a conviction. This is the second definition. A conviction of something not seen, which echoes, if you remember some of the language towards the end of that passage in 1 Peter, echoes some of the language here. We're going to get to it in just a bit. Faith is a conviction, and it's a conviction of something that you don't necessarily see. You may have plenty of evidence for it. You may have plenty of evidence for it, but you can't see it right now. But you know, you know deep down inside of you 
that it's real. It is real. <laughs> but this isn't all that faith is. Because what the author of Hebrews doesn't do in this specific verse, he does it later in his book. Well, what he doesn't do in this specific verse is he doesn't tell us what the object of our hope or our faith is. He doesn't tell us what the, the assurance is for. Like, what is it pointed to? What are we assured of? He doesn't tell us what our conviction is about. In other words, what is the object of our faith? What is our faith fixed on? And to see that, I want to jump over real quickly to John 1, starting with verse 11. Because John describes faith in a very specific way. A way that in, very, in, 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 in a very real way kind of mirrors what Peter's talking about in 1 Peter 1. Listen to John 1, verse 11. John says, he, that's Jesus, Jesus came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. But... To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the, the will of man, but of God. They were born of God. And so Peter's talking, or, or John's talking here about what Peter was talking about. This is the new birth. This is what it looks like to be born again. And God willing, next year, we're going to be in the gospel of John. I was looking over some of my notes yesterday. I'm excited. It's going to be an awesome time. This book is so filled with the glory of God. But one of the central paradigms in that book is what the new birth is, what it means to be born again. And God willing, we'll see that in droves next year. But the way that John describes this experience of the new birth is a receiving of Jesus. Jesus comes before you in the, person, in, in the flesh when it, when it was them, or in the word with us, you see the reality of Jesus and you either say, I receive that and I want him for all that he says that he is. Or you say, I don't want that. I don't receive. I'll receive just this little bit or I won't receive any of it. I'm done with that book. And this is what John's talking about. To believe in Jesus is to receive him. And he says here that the, the people he came to, his own people, the Jewish people at first, most of them did not believe. They did not receive him. But to those who did, who, who received him, who believed in his name, God gave the right to become his own children. And so we, we see here that to receive Jesus is to believe in him. When you believe in Jesus, you are receiving him in all the things that he is in the scriptures like Peter earlier in Matthew 16, you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God. And so the object of our faith is Jesus. And this means that saving faith isn't just an assurance of a fact. It isn't just the conviction of something that's gonna happen in the future. It, saving faith is the receiving of a person. And that person is the God-man Jesus Christ. That's what saving faith is. That's what authentic faith is. It is the embracing of Christ Jesus by our soul when we encounter him in the gospel. It's a, it's a confidence in him. It's an assurance in him. It's a conviction in him that he and his promises are true. Now, before we go back to 1 Peter, I think we need to make a critical observation. And this observation is that faith, although it is a gift from God, is never a passive experience. 
It is not a passive experience. It's not just something that happens to us. It is something that happens in us and through us. And this is explicitly why we're commanded to believe throughout the Bible. This is why there's multiple commands. Mark 1.15, Jesus went, Jesus says, repent and believe the gospel. Believe in the gospel. Uh, you remember Acts 16, Paul and Silas, they're in jail. Philippian jailer comes to them after things go sideways for him. And he says, what must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas are like, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Faith is commanded throughout the scriptures because here's the deal. Jesus is real. Jesus is real. We are obligated to believe in real things because of their realness. The more real they are, the more the obligation is. And we're obligated to believe in Jesus because he and the gospel are real things. So while faith isn't an act of the will, it is active in our lives because faith actively receives Jesus. Faith actively clings to Christ and his promises. It holds on to Jesus because he's our only hope. He really is our only hope. And he's the greatest treasure in the universe. And so this act of faith, this clinging to Jesus, this I'm not going to let go of you. You're my treasure. You're my hope. However imperfectly it happens in our lives. And it will happen imperfectly. There's no perfect faith in broken, sinful, fallen hearts. There's just not. It will be alloyed with doubt. It will be mixed with confusion. But though it's imperfect, the object of our faith isn't, and that's Jesus. If it happens, it happens by the grace of God and it happens by the mercy of God. So trusting in God is an act of clinging to Christ. It's not a natural phenomenon. It, it's, it's very easy to trust in ourselves. Would you agree with that? Yes. I, Levi agrees. I don't care if you guys agree. He does. That's all I meant. It's very easy to, to trust in yourselves. It's very easy to trust in what you can pull off because you know it. I know I can do this. I know I can do that. Um, it's very natural to trust in ourselves. It is not natural to trust in God. It is not natural to trust in him. And when it happens, well, like when, you, when you've been walking through a really hard period in your life and you find yourself clinging to him, you know it's not you doing it. You know that it's a miracle. Richard Sibbs, uh, one of the great Puritan writers, probably one of my favorite Puritan authors from the 1600s, refers to faith as a spark from heaven that is kindled into the heart of a Christian that God blows on and fans and grows until it becomes a fire. That's faith. But here's the question we have now as we shift back to 1 Peter. What does faith have to do with joy? Like how does faith work to give us the inexpressible joy of 1 Peter 1 and Luke 2, the joy that the angel was talking about. Like, how does faith make that happen? And so I want to turn back to 1 Peter, and I want to look at, begin reading with verse 5 here. It's talking about us. Peter says, who by God's power, that's us, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And then he says this, 
in this, you rejoice. In this experience in the previous sentence. And I want to pause there. Next, next week, God willing, we're going to look at, at verses, uh, is it the next two verses, six and seven, which will engage suffering in the life of a Christian. How does suffering play into our joy? It has a part. And Peter actually uses the word necessary in the next verse. But that's next week. Before we do that, I want to look at faith specifically here. We're guarded through faith for a salvation in the last time. Peter says, in this, in this experience of being guarded by faith, we rejoice. And what is, so what is rejoicing? Rejoicing is joy being made audible. That's what rejoicing is. Um, and Peter's expectation here is that in receiving Jesus, in him being our assurance, our conviction, our confidence, in receiving him, we would rejoice. That's his expectation here. He's talking in our experience of faith that there would be joy welling up in our hearts so great that it needs to be vocalized. That's what rejoicing is. Rejoicing is when your heart has these floodgates and when your heart gets filled with joy about anything, if that joy goes over the floodgates and you can't keep it in anymore, you can't contain your excitement anymore, it comes out. You let people know, I'm happy. I'm glad about this or that. And that's what Peter expects here. An audible, vocalized joy when you must express your gladness because it's just surging in your hearts. And we know that this is what Peter has in, in mind because when we get to verses eight and nine, he powerfully connects that joy, the rejoicing joy with faith, the faith that God is using to guard us. Look at verses eight and nine in 1 Peter 1. Peter says, though you have not seen him, he's talking about Jesus, though you haven't seen Jesus, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining, he says, the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so we see here a very clear connection between the, the experience of faith in the life of a Christian and this joy, this joy, this inexpressible joy and gladness that our our lives in Christ Jesus should show or indicate through rejoicing. Faith isn't an additive here. It's not like the thing thrown in on the side. Faith is essential to this joy. And we know this because in his expression of joy here, he kind of mirrors something that was going on in, in the Hebrews passage, Hebrews 11.1. 1. If you remember, faith is a conviction of things not yet seen. Not seen. You can't see it. You may have evidence for it, but you can't see it. However, you have a conviction. You know that this is true. You know that this is real. And for us right now, we haven't seen Jesus in the past and we can't see Jesus right now, unless you're having an experience out there that I don't know about, but I doubt that. Um, we can't see Jesus right now, but we love him. We love him and we believe in him. We've put our trust in him, which is faith. And in that faith, in that experience of receiving him, enjoying him, loving him, we rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. This is the experience of joy. 
that Peter's got in focus. And he says that in this experience, we are obtaining the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. That's what's going on in our experience. And this is where the connection between faith and joy becomes vital for us. Last week we said joy is this living hope that we have. We have this hope that the object of our hope, Jesus, is going to come back one day. He's going to come back and he's going to take us to himself and we will be with him forever. That's our hope. That's our living hope. And that future joy, that future hope that we have streams into the present through this experience of hoping. We hope, we long for that to happen. But without faith, there is no joy in that experience of hope. There is no confidence that it's going to actually take place. And so faith is essential to that hope being made into joy. Because what faith does is faith embraces the object of our hope and brings it into the present. We know that that's going to happen. We know it. We know he's going to come back for us. We know he's going to embrace us, that we're going to be in his presence forever, and we experience it in the present through faith. A future reality of massive joy streams into the present, which is why Peter says that this is this joy is found in the obtaining of the outcome of your faith. You are experiencing that joy in trusting in Jesus. What hope and faith do together in, in the life of a Christian is utterly unique and amazing. It is so incredible because they are tapping into a joy that has not been experienced yet. Jesus hasn't come back. He will one day, guaranteed. That is a real thing. But he hasn't come back. This text is saying that the joy of that moment is so huge, so compelling, so alive, so real, that by God's grace, through faith, it can stream into the presence right now, like today. And that <clears throat> tasting of this joy through faith right now is how faith and hope work together to bring the heart of the Christian into an inexpressible joy, a joy that is filled to the brim with glory, causing them to rejoice. This is why Peter can tell us, in this you rejoice. Now, the most important question we can ask today, staring this reality in the face, is how can this joy be mine, like today? How can I experience this joy today? Because the fact that joy in the future can invade the present isn't great news unless that can happen to me. Like that's when it becomes great news. That's when it becomes great news because um, it isn't helpful unless we can experience this firsthand. This is just a statement about a reality. And so I'm preaching this today. This is not a lecture. Preaching means that I have a desire here to see this reality in all of you and in myself. I want this. I want this. This is, this is my job here, and I take it very seriously. My job is really simple at Risen Hope. Very simple. My job, I'm entirely committed 100% of the way to making our joy, your joy, my joy, complete in Jesus Christ. That's what it is. 
every day. This is my job. And the way I'm going to do it for all of you and the way I'm going to do it for me today, the way this is going to happen today is I'm going to point us to the object of our faith. I'm going to point us to the object of our hope. I'm going to point us to the object of our joy. And that object is the same for all of those. It's Jesus. So I'm going to close with Hebrews 12, verse 1. I want you to listen to this passage. Hebrews 12, verse 1, the author is inviting us to live our lives a certain way. He says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The author of Hebrews here is telling us, well, something we looked at earlier. Jesus is the founder of our faith. He's the one who made it. He is the perfecter of our faith. He's the one who's going to bring it into sight when he shows up on that day. This is exactly what we saw in 1 Peter. We believe the gospel. We believe Jesus because of Jesus. And we're called here by the author of Hebrews to look to Christ. That's the call of the Christian. The call of the Christian is really simple. It's to look to Jesus, to look to Jesus, looking at him, receiving him, making him in our lives the treasure that he is. And the author of Hebrews helps us by giving an example of what it like, looks like to seek a treasure, even in great trauma. In fact, the greatest trauma ever experienced in the universe. What happened to Jesus on the cross? It says here, he despised the shame and there was more shame experienced by that man in that six hours than the whole world has experienced. He looked in the middle of all of it to the joy that was set before him. Beyond the nails, beyond the agony of suffocation, beyond the excruciating pain of being lacerated by whips, beyond the struggle to stay alive on that tree and beyond the severing of his father's presence, which was the worst of all, beyond all of those things, <clears throat> Jesus looked to the joy that was set before him. That was, the, that was what kept him on the cross. You want to know what kept Jesus on the cross? The joy that was set before him. The joy of being with his father, being at the right hand of the throne of God. And this is the same exact joy that needs to dominate our lives. This is the same exact joy that Peter's talking about in 1 Peter. It is the joy of being in the presence of God the Father and his precious Son. That's this joy. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. This is a remarkable, this is a remarkable verse because what it's saying here is that joy is what drove Jesus to pay for our sins. It was gladness that drove Christ to remove the wrath of God from us and to grant us grace and mercy and love that will culminate in unending joy. Like this is a radical concept. This is not normal. This is extraordinary that you and I can share in that joy in this verse for all eternity is because Jesus had to go through that suffering. He had to experience that suffering to get us 
unending joy. My life, I'm going to be real with you, like this is my life. Like my life, I want to be happy. Not just normal happiness. I want to be filled with this inexpressible joy. I desire this. I long for this. This is what I get up in the morning for every day. I want this joy. And Jesus died to make it a reality. He died to purchase this for us. I mean, we go through our lives with a cup, filling it with all sorts of stuff that can never actually meet our needs. This is what the human condition is. We want to fill it with all sorts of stuff that can't actually meet what we need. And Christmas, this is what Christmas is about. It holds out a cup of infinite joy, eternal, unending joy. And that cup is called Jesus. And Christmas is... This angel's message to these shepherds is a plea to pursue joy in Christ. That he died, he came into this world, died for us so that we could have this joy. In a few moments, we're gonna celebrate communion. And um, this is the Lord's Supper. This is the memorial of what happened in this passage when it says he endured the cross. This is what we're remembering. This is what we're holding on to. Jesus gave himself for us in Hebrews 12. And I'm praying, I'm going to pray in a few moments here, and I'm going to invite you into praying for yourself that you would experience what he purchased for you, what he bought with his own blood. Jesus didn't just die to get us off the hook. He did that. Jesus didn't die just so that we would go to heaven. We get that. Jesus didn't just die for us to be forgiven. We get that. That's an awesome thing. Jesus died ultimately for us to have this joy in him. All those other things work for this purpose, this full and lasting joy, the joy of knowing Christ Jesus. This is not just a massive joy in the future. This is a joy that floods into the present. And so plead with with God. Ask God to make this joy real to you today. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Remove everything from your view except for Christ in the next few moments. Worship him and plead with him to make the obtaining of your faith, the outcome of your faith, a reality right now today, that you would taste that inexpressible joy, not a generic random joy, a joy fixed on a savior who loves you and died for you so that you would have this joy for ages unending in the presence of his Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm grateful for my friends today being here with me. I'm grateful for your mercy and grace in providing us with your word. I don't know what we would do without it. I know that there is nothing we can do apart from your grace to make what we've talked about this morning a reality in our hearts. We need you. Help us to have this assurance. Help us to have this conviction. Help us to receive Jesus for all that he is, Father God. I pray that your mercy and your grace would be poured into the present 
and that we would feel and experience inexpressible joy that is filled to the brim with your glory and your worth and your beauty, Father. I pray that your son in the next few moments, as we prepare for communion and as we prepare our hearts for receiving the elements, that we would recognize that Jesus is everything to us. He's everything. There isn't anything in this world that's more beautiful, more worthy of our praise, and more essential to our souls than to know him and to embrace him as our joy. It is the most important thing. Father, do this great work by the power of your Holy Spirit in our hearts, in my heart especially today, Father. In the name of Jesus, amen.